Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Ravick. Thank you for joining me to this for this particular podcast. Over the past twelve to eighteen months, people have been uh, locked locked at home in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. In the early phase of it, we had one of a particularly curious scandal, if I can put it that way, of a ship called the Ruby Princess and how a range of passengers were allowed to leave the ship and also spread the virus in throughout Sydney and, and elsewhere. I'm privileged to have the author of a new book on the Ruby Princess saga, uh, Duncan McNabb, uh, with me. We're going to talk a bit, bit about the Ruby Princess and how the book came together and some of the lessons that people need to learn from it. Duncan, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Now, how did you begin to start writing this thing? Because there's a lot of publicity about it at the time. Uh, what what happened to you as the as the author? Um, take us through the uh, process. Um, reasonably straightforward. Um, I was just fascinated by everybody. Um, at the pictures we'd seen on the seen on the media of the large, beautiful white liner in circular key with 2,700 people being hurried off the boat that morning of the 19th of March, are absolutely fascinated by it. Um, and what happened immediately after? Um, at that stage, I was working at Channel Seven, and we decided to do a very fast turnaround documentary on it. Uh, the documentary, I think, went to air in the first week of April. And we turned it around in five days, pretty much, which for an hour's worth of television is interesting, if nothing else. Um, and what was coming out of the, our research on the story was how much, how bigger the story was. The documentary just focused on that one particular day. But coming out of what I noticed as I dug was the number of other ships around the world that had been in grave distress in the lead up to the Ruby Prince sailing, Princess sailing on the 8th of March. Um, and other things like the environmental history of these of these companies, and also fascinated by how the cruise industry had grown over the last fifty odd years um, from something that had been. I suppose we always look at films uh, where we see the people in lovely evening wear crossing the Atlantic on one of the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth or something or other, and stories of Titanic and that sort of thing. The cruise industry today is an incredibly different beast. It's almost like a shopping mall at sea. Uh, the, the cruise ship is more the destination than where you go to. So I was very keen to dig deeper into that. And um, that's where the book ended up. So it's not only just that one moment in time where the Ruby Princess disgorges its passengers, it's the whole lead up to it. And in part, what's going to happen afterwards. What did you discover when you began looking at the process uh, in, in the lead up to to what happened on that day when the passengers were let go, what did you? What, what were the most interesting things you learned? I suppose the the only the events of the nineties of March were um, rather beautifully covered um, in the Brett Walker's Commission of Inquiry, the com commission that the New South Wales government authorised, um, led by Brett Walker SC and assisted by Richard Beasley. Um, and that really showed what happened that night, how the disaster occurred. And I suppose New South Wales Health had been diligent. They'd prepared for all this sort of stuff. They'd done pretty much a very good job preparing for it. 
And the oddity of it all is that on the 8th of March, when the Ruby Princess came back from the cruise before the disastrous one, it had been declared a medium risk ship. New South Wales Health had done its job according to the letter. They'd kept the sick passengers on board, the passengers who were unwell on board, until the COVID-19 tests had come back. They came back negative. Um, the passengers were then allowed to leave the ship. That's how the system should have worked. The Ruby Princess, when it came back on the 19th, had a very different scenario. And this is where the, I suppose, the two problems join. Um, as it was heading back towards Sydney, all the normal arrival protocols start. Um, and a large chunk of that is to decide whether there's the health and biosecurity issues. And that decision ultimately comes down to New South Wales Health as to what risk level it is. And there are three, low, medium and high, no great surprise there. On the way back into Sydney, uh, this, with the information provided from the ship, the New South Wales panel of experts decided the ship was low risk. Um, and that happened on the afternoon, early on the afternoon of the day before it arrived. That's fair enough. But what, and this is where the great problem lies, is that no one bothered to update the situation as the ship got closer. And the bottom line was that more people were presenting with symptoms that may have been COVID-19 or something else. The risk level is rising on board. New South Wales Health don't freshen their information before the ship docks. And at the same time, the ship's doctors also didn't tell New South Wales Health of the rising issue they had. So two glaring human errors occur. The ship comes back in as a commission of inquiry quite reasonably found it should have been medium risk. People should have been held on board. That's one problem. The second problem that comes in after that is that when the people, uh, the ill people, their swabs were taken by New South Wales Health and sent off to be analysed. They weren't analysed on the morning of the 19th of March. They weren't analysed on the afternoon of the 19th of March. The results, and they were positive results, didn't come in until mid-morning the day after. And by that stage, every last passenger on board had either travelled to their homes in around Sydney, around New South Wales, interstate, and a whole chunk of people had flown off internationally. And by that stage, pretty much everyone was gone. Only a couple remained in Sydney at that stage, and they were scooped up, fortunately, by New South Wales Health, who, when realising that it was time to push the panic button hard, um, acted very quickly. But by that stage, most of the people had gone, and that's how the pandemic spread so quickly. Um, there's this combination of errors, human error, oversights, dreadful oversights, um, and lousy communications as well. Um, that, that was the recipe for the disaster that happened. That said, as many experts have now said in hindsight, the ship should never have sailed in the first place. And we live with the consequences of that uh, pretty shortly afterwards with, with the lockdowns and all of that kind of thing for, for much of the year in different parts of the country. And in terms of the follow-up and looking more deeply at the cruise industry, Duncan, what are the mm. things you picked up on that were that were fascinating? Because you mentioned the structure of the businesses and everything else. The company, the company, yeah, the companies tend to have a really interesting kind of structure, and they're based all over the place, aren't they? Yeah, it's a, it's it's complex. I've, I'll try to get away from the complexity of it. Uh, look, the cruise industry really kicked off, and Carnival Cruises, in its original form, was one of the driving forces of that. Um, I mean, they, this 
company started off running a car ferry around the Caribbean. And the management was particularly astute, entrepreneurial, got it right. And they thought, well, they started buying some older ships and trying to get people on board. The method that they were using, as far as I can see, is you try and provide simple fixed price holidays for a large number of people rather than targeting the, um, the twin set pearls and first set that used to be on the, the Queen's set. The Queen liners and the Cunard, sorry, the Cunard liners. Um, yeah, they targeted they targeted people who wanted package holidays, and that's you know what we call them these days. Um, you know what it was going to cost you. You'd get a comfortable bed, good service, food, and then you'd pay for everything else on top of that. And that was the model to get people to drive from the Americas, Midwest to Florida, hop on board the ship, cruise around the Caribbean for a couple of a week or so, whatever it happens to be, come back, go home happy a great package holiday, particularly for families with kids. That's how it worked. Um, as that became incredibly popular, they then decided to modernise it even more and target a young audience. And they became the fun ships, I suppose, you know, party every night, lots of booze, dancing, carrying on, all that sort of stuff. Um, it lowered the demographic slightly and brought this whole new a whole new market of revelers to come in to join the older people who found them very comfortable trips. <laughs> Apologies, a cement truck just drove past. Um, so that's incredibly popular. And these ships actually became destinations. As that was happening, they became bigger and bigger. So you now you've got ships like the Ruby Princess and the Diamond Princess, that sort of thing. They take 2,700 people on board. Um, it's almost, it's a floating city, but it's a floating city that has options for, um, you know, lots of retail, um, casinos, in addition to the fun you've already paid for. So it's become, from what the cruise experts tell me, there is a significant profit to be obtained when the ship is at sea, catering to the needs of the guests on board. Accommodation and food is paid for, that's a fixed price. But it's the add-ons where the profit margin really kicks in hard. And it's in part why the cruise lines can offer um, fairly competitively priced fares, knowing they're going to pick up some serious dollars on top of that. I was just reflecting the other night, I've only been on a ship once before, and we got a particularly good price uh, for a cabin across the Atlantic. I mean, seriously, low price. What we realised when we got off is that my booze bill was slightly over half the cost of the cabin, and I was not terribly, uh, reasonably abstemious, and certainly not partying every night, but at that point, I realised how they make their money um, and make quite a lot of it, I would imagine. So that's how the cruise lines have embedded themselves. Um, and you look at it these days, there are people clamouring to get back on board ships as soon as they're reasonable to do so. It's an incredibly popular, comfortable package holiday. Um, and if, and if, you, if you want your holidays without too many surprises, then cruising is pretty much it. You, you know you'll be in a port on a certain day, you can book your entertainment when you get to that port, back on board at night, fed, watered, and on to the next one. It's a very simple, uncomplicated holiday until something like a virus spreads through the ship, in which case it changes very fast. What did your research pick up on the, you know, the, the economic cost to the cruise liners of you know, the coronavirus, how much of that features in the book? Uh, in passing, I suppose, it wasn't a major focus of mine. Um, I, for example, we know that before the coronavirus started, the um, chair of Mickey Arison, the chair of Carnival Cruises, which is the biggest leisure um, outfit in the world, by the way, um, 
he was worth about a bit over five billion dollars. I would imagine that's taken a bit of a hit. I mean, the the problem of keeping people on board, keeping the ships operating. You lead to operate a ship the size of the Ripley Princess, for example. You probably need a a hundred or so people on board to just keep it doing circles, running on minimal power in the Pacific, waiting for the chance to come back. The blow to the cruise lines has been massive, but also the supply chain that keeps them at sea has been massive. The port handlers, the people who provision them, the people who clean them. Um, it's a huge blow to the industry, but they will recover, but it's going to be damn slow. One of the things that I find interesting in your background is you uh... Uh, you've written a whole heap of books. I've got some of them here mm. at home. But you've also had a career in law enforcement in the past. Yep. How much does that shape the way in which you um, research, look at the material, filter the material, and, and get at what the truth is? Because it... It seems to me that someone like yourself has a particular advantage than there's a, the garden variety journalist that's only ever spent their time in the media. Yeah, uh, I think the skills are readily transportable, but it comes down to basic investigation techniques, which I think the media should use. Um, and many, many of my colleagues also do, which is refreshing. Many don't, which is problematic. And it's the basics. Um, investigation starts with a chronology. Um, and that chronology is the backbone for everything you do. Um, not particularly relevant to the Ruby Princess, but you've got to be able to prove what's been told to you actually happened, physically could have happened. Um, so you, you start very old fashioned, you start at the very beginning with the chronology, run it through to the end and then keep adding pieces to it until you get the final piece in place. Um, the moment you and I suppose the really significant thing on top of that is you let your investigations lead you to where the story ends rather than as some people do. And I, this is always a classic mistake for journalists and or coppers. Know what results you want and try and work the evidence to that. Let the reverse. The evidence talks to you and takes you down a path until you get to an end. Um, and some of the greatest investigative failures have been based on a preconceived end of the story. Uh, and trying to build the story toward that. That's a dreadful, dreadful mistake. And it happens to journalists. And I've seen a couple of cases where I've done defence work where that's happened as well. The basics have been forgotten. Start with the chronology. Let the evidence talk to you every step of the way. Um, and make sure that everything works. Can it have physically happened? I remember I, one of my first defence cases, a man was alleged to have done something absolutely horrific. The problem was he was 25 miles away if you actually bothered to prove it. So the allegation simply couldn't have happened. Um, and it's just real basics like that you never, ever forget. And that's the premise of every, every book I write. I've got to make sure that it all works. And I let the story talk to me because every time you do an interview, you might find something different. You might find that remarkable moment where you're heading down one line and you realise you were wrong. A piece of information pops up. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole new perspective. And that's, that's how these things work. Uh, if you go into it with a fixed, a fixed end in mind, you're going to blow it. So you, you would, I've been a little mischievous in the past week and tweeted the ABCs where, as we've gone through some particular scandals that have popped up mm. in the media, uh, assume nothing, believe no one, check everything. Is that something that uh, some of our colleagues in the media 
uh, might do well uh, to remember? Uh, absolutely. And just as a curator, they need to remember that quickly. I mean, there's a clickbait headline and a lot of stuff, but I'd like some substance. Thanks very much. There's a, <laughs> uh, just as an example, there's a story that um, about every four or five years, I'll get a phone call from a, a journalist who tells me he's about to solve the Donald Mackay murder. And as we discuss it, I then say to him, mate, I've heard this story before and your source is the same as the one I've been looking at for years. I mean, it would be great to solve it. And the bloke who's, who's providing the information is doing so with the best of all possible reasons, but it's not right. So, you know, that's how these things work. You've got to, some, some stories keep doing circuits for years, but the information doesn't change. And if it wasn't particularly good day one, it doesn't get better with age. I suppose too, we've also got to remember when you, the more you interview people about stories, um, the more the story may change. And it's that old joke, I suppose, we've seen where you whisper in someone's ear and 12, 12 people down the line, the story is very, very different. That's what happens. Evidence gets contaminated by age. Evidence gets contaminated by repetition. Our memories aren't what they used to be. So if it's an old case, you've really got to go that little bit extra on it because I know I've got a fantastic memory, but sometimes I think I've remembered things clearly that I haven't. Um, and you've got to apply that rigid structure to everything you do. Did, did you then um, go, in, in that case, Duncan, and I'm mindful of the time, um, do you then go back to uh, past uh, past stories, past media clippings and, and other yep. things to reinforce that? Yeah, I look, when I first started writing, I'd go down to the library and pull out a very old vanilla folder full of yellowing clipped clip uh, information you know sometimes going back to the 1940s for example um these days you can it's a little bit more accessible online places like trobe is a remarkable source um online through the national library um these things are get the contemporaneous report and you'll see in particular i wrote a book on sydney's waterfront a while ago the current stories when you go back to the stories when they were originally written decades and decades before are very, very different. History has embellished them substantially. People have come forward with their theories that are absolutely rock solid. I am completely and utterly right, even though they're completely and utterly wrong. So go back to day one. If you've got if you've got access to the original contemporaneous reports, you might factor a bit of journalistic license in, but you know, but the actual nuts and bolts are usually in those first reports and they're the ones that make they're important. Um, one moment. Truck going past. <laughs> That's really right. with me for one moment. Oh, Christ, it's decided to stop right in front of me. Um, sorry about that. That's right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, then... so it's those essential, those essential sources, the contemporaneous reports of what happened are really like gold for a journalist or a reporter or a writer. You can't, you can live without them, but I prefer not to. The uh, I guess what you're saying is you know interpretation is free, but facts is sacrosanct. Yeah, a story, and it's again, it's this notion of contamination of a story. They change over the years with with repetition. Everyone adds a little bit to it, which is very nice of them, but quite frustrating. Um, <laughs> so it's it's those that those original sources, and it's exactly the same with people. That first interview you have with someone is the is the linchpin of what you do. Their, their thoughts haven't been changed or colored by repetition or people saying, you know, adding their two bobs worth to it 
or questions that cause them to think about what they actually saw. So that very fresh, immediate recollection is incredibly important. Um, Duncan, I'm, as I've said, I'm mindful of the time and grateful for your time today. You. The, uh, the book is called The Ruby Princess. Uh, where can people get it? Everywhere, fortunately. Good old Booktopia, the great online resource, and all the major bookshops are carrying it. Um, um, the people that we love so much in the book business who actually get out and sell it for us. I think it'll be pretty much all around the country at the moment. Places like Big W, Kmart, Target, yep. all sorts of places. Duncan, thank you so much for joining me to talking, talking through you the new book, but also looking at the fundamentals of reporting. I think there'll be a few people who get a bit out of that as well. Thanks a lot. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Not a problem.